Good morning and welcome to Bibliography Among the Disciplines. In order to facilitate our conversation and our attentive listening this morning, I'd ask that you please disable your cell phones now. Bibliography Among the Disciplines. 350 participants, five venues, seven different kinds of session depending upon how you count. One app designed late in the night by Donna C. <laughs> and one deeply exhausted Rare Book School staff. We are delighted to have you here. This conference jointly sponsored principally by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation in New York City and Rare Book School based at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. For those of you who are new to the Rare Book School community, the rare in Rare Book School does not mean hard to find or arcane. Far from it. We like to think of the rare in Rare Book School as being near allied to that moment recorded by the great biographer and memorialist John Aubrey, who records the event of the burial of Ben Jonson. And as Ben Jonson, the great playwright, was being lowered into the ground at Westminster Abbey, one of his most cherished friends came up and said to the gravediggers, here is the sum of 18 shillings, an enormous sum. I would like you to engrave on the stone that lies over this great man's head, O rare Ben Jonson, O excellent man, unusual because of greatness. That is the greatness that we strive for every day. And I think that there is a great deal of greatness in the room in this community. We're delighted to be here at the Chemical Heritage Foundation. There is one important note germane to that. Uh, Anthony Grafton has changed the title of his talk and he'll now be discussing the history of the synthesis of trinitrotoluene. <laughs> It was something he had on his hard drive, and when he arrived this morning, he thought he might share it with you. By his hard drive, of course, I mean Professor Grafton's brain. This conference was first conceived in 2011, and it has ripened with time. Don Waters of the Mellon Foundation makes everything he touches better and smarter and more penetrating. The advisory board of the Rare Book School Mellon Project has been marvelous in their generosity. And the Rare Book School faculty over the last five or six years has really made the Mellon Project a reality in so many ways, large and small. But of course, it's the Mellon Fellows themselves who have added such tremendous value to our community, who have been a transformative force, who have listened wisely and well, and who have shared generously with us. We're deeply indebted to them. Last night, the event at the University of Pennsylvania was marvelous. It is true that 
um, in accordance with the reputations of many here present, you drank the bar dry <laughs> by 7 p.m. Well done. We're particularly grateful to Will Knoll and all the staff at the Kislak Center at Penn for sponsoring the events of yesterday. It seems to me that two bright threads run through the fabric of Rare Book School and have since its foundation at Columbia University by Terry Bellinger in 1983. The first of those bright threads is a close attention to the relationship between materiality and the making of culturally instantiated meaning. And the second of those threads is the building of community. One of the core messages of Rare Book School is not only do you not have to do it alone anymore, you can't do it alone. The nature of the enterprise requires our close collaboration. The nature of our enterprise, rooted in many ways in the people gathered in this room this morning, requires great rigor and it also requires celebration and wonder. It requires a condign humility before the materials that are before us. I would encourage you in these days to meet new people, to build community, and to go outside your comfort zone, to take some sessions that aren't in your bailiwick, and to expand the remit of bibliography in your own practice. Welcome, welcome. It's great that you are here. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Donna C., and I'm Administrative Director of the Andrew W. Mellon Society of Fellows in Critical Bibliography at Rare Book School, and I'm co-chairing this conference with Barbara Heritage. It is such a thrill for us to see you here at last. We've been looking forward to this for a very long time, and I wanted to thank you all for choosing to spend these days with us. Um, we've had some questions about how can I find out who is here, because it's so exciting to see everyone, um, and people want to be able to find uh, their friends and um, people that they'd like to meet. So please note that a list of all conference participants has just been added to the app for your reference. Um, now, so for those of you who have been reading your email over the last few weeks, you know that my specialty is the really long FAQ. <laughs> and I told you that I thought I was finished, but I'll give you the final installment today on the mic. <laughs> So question one, how did you manage to put such a complex program together? <laughs> this conference is entirely powered by the expertise and enthusiasm of the members of the Andrew W. Mellon Fellowship of Scholars in Critical Bibliography at Rare Book School. So if you find yourself in the midst of great conversations and exciting new work these days, please know that this is the hallmark of our Mellon Fellows. Of the 60 fellows in the program, 45 are at the conference today. I would like to recognize, in particular, the fellows on our conference planning committee. When I call your name, please rise and remain standing. Megan Doherty, Stephanie Ann Frampton, Vera Keller, 
Andras Kaiseri, Marissa Nicosia, Aaron Pratt, Yael Rice, Courtney Roby, Lena Saleme, Juliet Sperling, and Carolyn Wigginton. I would also like to acknowledge all of our Mellon Fellows who have organized sessions. There are too many of you for me to be able to read your names right now, um, but would you please rise just for now um, and for a moment to be recognized. Thank you. Um, question three. What facilities do you have for nursing mothers? Um, please ask at the CHF front desk, and um, we have a designated nursing room that we can um, give you access to. Question four, where can I smoke? We recommend, um, yes, I, there are some among you that I know will be looking for that answer. Um, we recommend the front steps, but you can also um, go across the patio to the back parking lot. Question four, what are all these stickers that you've attached to my badge? So first of all, um, I hope that you've discovered that the CHF Wi-Fi code is on the back of your badge. Now, unlike when you come to RBS, here it's the same code on every badge. So if you're in desperate need of a conversation starter, just hide your badge and ask that person you're trying to talk to what the Wi-Fi code is. Now, if you have a little orange dot on the bottom right corner of your badge, it means that you've paid to attend the brunch um, on Sunday, which is now pretty full. Um, but if you're interested in going and you didn't sign up, please talk to us. We are still going through all of your responses from the registration form to select the uh, most popular table topics. And then we plan to have sign-up sheets um, posted in the Overlook Lounge later this afternoon or tomorrow morning, perhaps, so that you can sign up to sit at a table with a theme that interests you if you're coming to brunch. Now, most of the brightly colored stickers on the bottom of the badges should be pretty self-explanatory. Um, the goal is really to help the new faces among us navigate in a crowded room. Um, however, I wanted to mention that the maroon faculty ribbon, which I don't have, but you'll see it out there, um, is a marker for RBS faculty only, because I know um, many of you are faculty elsewhere. Since our faculty are drawn from all across the United States, as well as the UK and the Netherlands, we are very grateful to have 28 members of the RBS faculty here for the conference, and we hope that you'll have the opportunity to talk with them about their areas of expertise. Now the last sticker I'd like to talk about, many of you probably haven't seen yet, but there's a little blue heart with Seville written on it. Recently in the media, the word Charlottesville has unfortunately been used as a synonym for violence. Just the day before yesterday, my children's schools were placed on lockdown because of a credible mass shooting threat. It is still very hard for me to believe that this is real and happening in the Charlottesville that I know and love. We are sure that it has likewise been hard for many of you who have fond memories and associations with RBS and Charlottesville to see these recent developments. Since this is the first time since August that there has been a large gathering of people with ties to Rare Book School, we wanted to share with you Charlottesville's own small symbol of hope and solidarity. If you would like a Seville sticker for your badge, you can pick one up in the Overlook Lounge on the second floor. Thank you.
Hi, my name is Barbara Heritage. I'm the Associate Director of Rare Book School and its Curator of Collections, and I'm co-chairing the conference with Donna C. Um, again, we are so delighted to have you today. And a lot of your travel here has been made possible through important sponsorships. Of course, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. And if the foundation didn't exist, this program would not exist. Um, in addition, there have been a number of societies that have provided space uh, gratis for this conference, including the American Philosophical Society, the Free Library of Philadelphia, the Kislak Center for Special Collections at the University of Pennsylvania, and the Philadelphia Museum of Art. In addition, we have raised a number of scholarship funds for people to come to this conference. More than 40 of you are coming here on scholarship, thanks to the Bibliographical Society of America, which funded 10, the Bibliographical Society of the University of Virginia, which funded five, and the Caxton Club of Chicago, which sponsored an additional scholarship. So those um, societies are um, going to be up in the uh, Overlook Lounge. You'll meet people from them. They have books and other publications available. In addition, the Bibliographical Society of the University of Virginia sponsored two workshops and the Grolier Club of New York sponsored our social justice luncheons. And again, you can meet staff from the Grolier Club up in the Overlook Lounge. They are going to have a display up there. Um, so please, um, let's take a moment to thank those sponsors. It's really heartening to see these bibliographical clubs and societies, which are not necessarily known um, to all of us joining us for this conference. Um, I think we're all here because we share common values. And we understand how the book is a locus for all of these important things that we're doing now. Um, and, it's a, and it's a way to bring methods and practice together across all of our different work. Uh, we've designed this conference not around periods and regions but around methods, practices, ways of investigating. And that's because we didn't want to have all the medievalists in the same room, the same time apart from the people working on Islamic books. So our purpose is really to bring people together and, um, and I think this is working so far. So um, I think it's also a sign that our communities, including book collectors and antiquarian booksellers are here too, participating in this. Um, and I hope our conversations together will lead to new projects and new ways of working on the book. We also have to acknowledge the many individuals who contributed to this conference. There were 24 additional scholarships made possible by 42 donors. Um, and so the scholarship awardees who are here, would you please stand up? I'd like to acknowledge you. If you came here on a scholarship, please stand. Thank you. So this conference also marks another occasion for Rare Book School and its work with the Mellon Foundation and with our Mellon Fellows who are working on critical bibliography. Uh, we're inaugurating a Society of Fellows in Critical Bibliography whose special purpose is to foster the study of texts, images, and artifacts as material objects through capacious interdisciplinary scholarship. The Society will enrich humanistic inquiry and education by identifying mentoring and training promising early career scholars. 
And there are a number of promising early career scholars in this room, as well as their advisors. So uh, we encourage you during this conference to please um, seek out some of our Mellon Fellows. You can find them. They will be wearing a ribbon that says Fellow. It's green, hanging down from their badge. Please approach them and ask them about their work in the fellowship. Um, There's a table in the Overlook Lounge dedicated to the Society of Fellows, and it has um, information about the application process. We are recruiting uh, new members for the Society. We'll be choosing 10, um, and the Society Selection Committee um, has members here as well as outreach. So if you're interested in learning more about the Society and its activities, reach out to our fellows. Um, I know that they will welcome conversations with you. And now to turn to our plenary, finally, at last. Um, I regret to say that Vera Keller, who is to serve as moderator and respondent on this panel, could not be present today. Um, She's located on the West Coast, and her travel plans were disrupted owing to the devastating wildfires that are in Northern California. And so she missed her flight um, here and her connecting flight and will not be able to be present. Um, However, her co Moderator and respondent, um, Yale Rice, is um, going to be running the show. Yale is the assistant professor of the history of art and Asian languages at Amherst College. She specializes in the art and architecture of South Asia and greater Iran, with a particular focus on manuscripts and other portable arts of the 15th through 18th centuries. Yale has been um, a Mellon Fellow at Rare Book School for several years, and she's just an extraordinary person. <coughs> Um, I'm very privileged to introduce her, and we look forward to this session. Thank you very much. Thank you, Barbara, for the introduction. And I just want to take a moment to thank the organizers of this extraordinary conference, Barbara, Donna, Claire Rieger, the whole team. Um, It's just phenomenal what you've done, um, including an app. I deeply regret that due to unforeseen circumstances, Vera Keller, my co-organizer of this panel, is unable to join us. I credit her with sowing the seeds of this comparative plenary session, which seeks to explore the various ways that books and manuscripts have been described, categorized, and conceptualized in the Islamic world and in Europe up till the 18th century. It's my great pleasure to introduce the first of our two esteemed speakers on this panel, Francois de Roche, who since 2014 has held the elected position of Professor of the History of the Quran at the Collège, uh, Collège de France in Paris. Professor de Roche is without question the foremost expert of the Quran manuscripts of the Umayyad and Abbasid periods. His codicological and paleographical studies of Arabic manuscripts from the early Islamic period have fundamentally transformed multiple disciplines, my own art history among them. He's the author of the recent Qur'ans of the Umayyads, a first overview from 2014, La Voix et la Calme, from, uh, published by the Collège de France in 2016, Islamic Codicology, an Introduction to the Study of Manuscripts in Arabic Script from 2005, 
and the important Scribe et Manuscrits de Moyen Orient, uh, published in 1997, among many other publications, including essays, edited volumes, articles, and so on. He's been awarded the Bronze Medal from the CNRS, the Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur, the highest French order, uh, order of honor for military and civil merits, and was elected to the membership of the Academy of Inscriptions and Belles Lettres in 2000, uh, 2011. He also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and the Scientific Council of the École Pratique des Hautes Études. And the title of the paper that Professor Daroche will be presenting today is From One Giant to Another, Biobibliographical Practice in the Islamic World, 10th to the 17th centuries. Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Daroche. like <coughs> my turn to thank the organizer and uh, to uh, host of this uh, session. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Professor Keller couldn't come, but uh, uh, Rice is here to uh, say a few kind words about my person. Uh, I feel a little betrayed in my turn because I will be speaking of a topic which is not perhaps familiar to you, but I will try to introduce you to uh, this uh, world of uh, uh, bibliographical practice in the Islamic world. In <coughs> 1294, a certain Al-Khalidini made an inventory of the manuscripts preserved in the great mosque of Kehran. The part devoted to the Quranic copies contains entries that are sometimes quite precise, enough, in any case, to identify manuscripts a uh, manuscript seven centuries later, as Tim Sandler was able to do for the copy he called the Quran on white vellum, of which the description appears on the screen. The support used, the format, the kind of writing and vocalization, as well as the illumination and the binding, are described briefly but precisely in a document which is not intended, however, to facilitate the retrieval of the manuscript but to draw up a state of the collection within a legal framework. It is based, actually, on an earlier similar document that was written in 1135, shortly after the invasion of the Banu Hilal who ravaged the region towards the middle of the 11th century. If this assumption about the date of the initial inventory is accurate, it means that a bibliographic practice interested in the physical constituents of the book was already circulating in the Muslim world, or at least in its western part. One problem, however, is that Kehran's inventory is a unique document of its kind. In general, the book historian cannot fail to be struck by the almost complete absence of catalogues of medieval libraries in the Islamic world. It is only towards the end of the period which occupies us today, from the 16th century onward, and in an Ottoman context, that very brief inventories are developed, lists of titles accompanied sometimes by the name of the author. I suspect that they were prepared by retrans retranscribing the names, the titles found on the edge of the manuscripts when stored in horizontal position according to the traditional usage. However, 
will read here and there in the sources that catalogues of libraries existed, such as that of the famous collection of the Humayyad Caliph of Cordoba, Al-Hakam II, which would have occupied 44 volumes or quarts, we don't know exactly. But we are unaware of the way in which this document wo was organized and whether it, in it included any other information than the title and the author's name of the hundreds of thousands of manuscripts that this library is supposed to have contained, but of which only one seems to have survived. In fact, only the catalogue of a medieval library in Damascus and the inventory of the holdings of the Great Mosque in Kerouan give us an idea of how a book could be described, and the catalogue of Damascus, which I just mentioned, contains actually little data on the materiality of the volumes. For a long time, the Arabic book, or better, in Arabic letters, was handwritten. It was only in the 19th century that printing began to play a significant role in the intellectual environment of the Muslim world. This means that the period that concerns us, which extends from the beginning of Islam in the 7th century to the 17th century, corresponds only to a manuscript production with all the peculiarities that this implies. It began in a special way since the first book of this handwritten tradition was the Quran, the Musaf, the individual copy of its text, distinguished from the content, the Quran, imposed its layout. Over the centuries, the latter has practically not moved away from that initial model, and even the writing has remained generally stable enough for a contemporary reader to read a 10th century manuscript, for instance. On the other hand, Almost from the beginning, in the course of the 8th century, paper substantially modified the production of texts and therefore of manuscripts. At that time, a real quantitative explosion occurred which affected moreover a considerable space where the Arabic language was used by authors for literary composition between Marrakesh and Samarkand some 80 kilometers away. In this context, arises an exceptional work from every point of view. In 10th century Baghdad, in the middle of instability and disorder, the first of our two giants, a bookseller, a son of a bookseller, conceived the project of a census of literary production up to his time in Arabic, essentially, but not exclusively. And Nadim, who died in 990, probably began in the exercise of his profession to accumulate notes on the books he saw passing, or of which reliable sources informed him. When he put his work into form, he gave it the title Firist, a Persian word meaning catalogue. The organization of the whole is thematic, and it is highly significant that, as an introduction, he devoted the first chapter to what makes the substance of his work, writing, and not the crown. There is no chance in this. In Arabic, the word that generally refers to the book, kitab, derives from the root which refers to writing. From a lexicographical point of view, there is a direct link between book and writing, a situation that is significantly different from that observed in Indo-European languages, where the materiality of the book as an object is at the forefront. Within the various sections which constitutes the book, the theorist offers a sequence of notices 
devoted to the authors whose works are enumerated. More than a dry bibliography, it is a wealth of information about authors, as seen in this notice which remained unfinished, the place for the date of the author's death being left blank, a situation which is not unique, which means that what we have today is not a finished work, but almost finished. The materiality of the book, on the other hand, is of little interest to Anadine. Apart from a few considerations on paper, I see only one passage in which he refers to the actual layout of manuscripts of poetry, which may imply an attention of, on his part for the book as an object. Unsurprisingly, the quality of writing seems to him worth mentioning. On several occasions, Nadim reported that he had seen a copy transcribed by a famous copist, for example, at Tirmizi Sahir, to whom an author, Azadjaj, had entrusted the task of preparing a presentation copy for Al-Qasim ibn Ubaidallah, a vizier of the Abbasid Caliph Al-Mutadid, who reigned from 892 to 902. And, and I quote him, we saw it and it was on fine paper. A characteristic, and this is a kind of parenthesis, a characteristic of the Arabic handwritten tradition is the presence of title pages, the earliest example of which date back to the 9th century. The title of the work is usually followed by the author's name and sometimes details about the latter. And I should add, it's introduced the first word in both cases is kitab, so and so. Not all copies are provided with such a title page, but its use was fairly common and adultly facilitated enterprises such as Anadim's. The profusion of writings evidenced by his text nevertheless coexists with a scholarly tradition that privileges the oral transmission of knowledge. In fact, the Muslim community was defined as the Ummah of the Isnad, the community of uh, the Isnad, Isnad meaning the chain of oral transmission from master to disciple, which thus connects anyone who knows a text with the author of the latter, a concept valid in the first place, of course, for the Quran. While Anadim's initiative was not emulated, with the exception of a few bibliographies on more limited subjects, biographical dictionaries, which of course also contain bibliographical data, were to have a lasting success in the Muslim world. Although they do not always concern scholars, or at least not systematically, one of their stakes is to make, to make it possible to verify their credentials and period of activity. And in contradistinction to the uh, Firist, you see that the author is uh, mentioned without the title of the works. It's very general. In the Muslim tradition, oral transmission from person to person is therefore held to be more reliable than the written one. This conception originated in circles interested in the knowledge of Muhammad's utterance and deeds, or hadith, as a norm for the Muslim community. <coughs> the student had to obtain a license, or ijazah, from his master in order to be able to quote and teach them. While the example of the Muslim West is not absolutely representative of the Muslim world as a whole, the way in which transmission is carried out there allows us to identify another conception of bibliography. In this region, 
scholars began to, to produce catalogues, also referred to as farrasa, a word obviously related to fihrist, in which the texts for which they had themselves obtained ijazas were enumerated along with a chain of transmission which was recorded in detail. The bibliography contained in such documents thus focuses on the individual not as author but as bearer of a text or texts and part of a network. In the culture of classical Islam, there is actually a dialectic between a dialectic between this type of oral transmission and the written one, namely the book. Without neglecting the importance of the former, it should be emphasized that these licenses or ijazas took the shape of a text which was written on the copy containing the text concerned. The situation is thus reversed and the book vouchers for the operation. The manuscript even becomes sometimes authoritative by itself. The collation and the notes certifying the completion of this operation often spell out the identity of the manuscripts that served as a reference, an autograph copy, for example, or a certified one. Miscellanies in the Escorial collection seems to, seem to summarize very well the tension between oral and written and the conception of the book associated with it. In 1409, Muhammad ibn Abdelaziz al-Sanaji, a scholar from Meknes in northern Morocco, made a selection of fundamental texts that he compiled separately and then assembled according to a given order. Once the book was finished, the copist and scholar left for the Levant, stopping after a detour by Al-Andalus in Alexandria, Cairo, Jerusalem and Damascus before going to Mecca for the pilgrimage. This trip was an opportunity for him to meet with scholars whose teaching he followed and who, in several cases, gave him licenses for texts he had previously copied while, while still in Meknes. But in other cases, the license was given for a text that was not physically present in the manuscript, firstly because the latter was already completed and bound, and it was impossible to add anything more than to it than notes, Secondly, because the dimensions of some of the works would have exceeded a single volume. At the end of his journey, Muhammad ibn Abdalaziz al-Sanaji owned miscellanies which were in a way double at the intersection between a handwritten transmission sanctioned by authorization or ijaza delivered by his masters according to the classical procedure on the one hand and on the other the written acknowledgement of his learning of text. His miscellanies there presented themselves as a synthesis between these farasas that I mentioned just now and a book in a more conventional sense. One detail deserves to be noted. Like many Arabic manuscripts, that of Muhammad al-Sanaji contains notes added by the owner himself with chronological data on various authors. A practice of bio-bibliography therefore remained in the background, mainly focused on what was important for the authors of the biographical dictionaries mentioned previously. Does this mean that the characteristic of a specific manuscript did not count? In the 16th century, the library of a Moroccan sultan 
whom a contemporary had dubbed the caliph of the scholars and the scholar of the caliphs, revealed a situation that seems to me interesting for my purpose. Among the manuscripts of poetry he owned there, <coughs> he owned, there is an inverted symmetry between the volumes containing the complete works or diwan of poets of the Abbasid period and those with philological commentaries of these same poets, whereas the former were in their majority 12th and 13th century copies, the latter had been copied more recently, essentially in the 16th century. How should we interpret this situation? A possible explanation coincides with the widespread scholarly view that a transmission with fewer intermediaries between the source and the receiver is preferred. The same was true for the demands of the classical poets, the old manuscripts closer to the period uh, in which these authors lived would have been more sought after than more recent transcriptions, even if their appearance were not so refined than what one would expect in a princely library. Significantly, they were also produced in the East, that is to say closer to the source and not in the Islamic West. As for the commentaries, the stakes would have been lower and recent copies would have been then quite acceptable. This hypothesis seems to be supported by the existence of very ordinary manuscripts in other collections which were given an impressive pedigree, in other words, a fake, by more or less sophisticated means, but it's also true that in some cases, in literature about how to buy a manuscript, scholars recommend to uh, prefer this kind of manuscript with, uh, for example, Ijaza, to be sure that the text is correct. The approach I have just described is typical of the wider scholarly community, including a sultan at least, that is both our primary source of information and the one that produced and consumed most of the books, another clue, if need be, of a very strong practice of writing. However, it was only in the 17th century that a project to recount the titles of works not known at that time surfaced again. Just as Al-Nadim had worked in Abbasid Baghdad, the center of the Islamic world at that time, his distant successor worked in Constantinople under the Ottomans. Khatib Chelbi, also known as Haji Halifa, who died in 1657, was a well-to-do civil, civil servant who passionately collected the material of his huge work, the Kashf as zunun that is to say the removal of doubt, in the rich libraries of the capital of the empire. The considerable amount of information, with 15,000 titles, in Arabic mainly, but also in Persian and Turkish, explains that uh, uh, the bibliographer has reduced digression and has limited himself as a rule to the strict minimum, namely the title of the work and the author's name as well as chrono chronological data. As in Nadim's Furist, the thematic structure has been preserved, but the titles arranged alphabetically are really the protagonists, as you can see on the screen, which brings us closer to the Ottoman inventories I mentioned at the beginning. However, Katib Chelisby's work included bibliographical material for important authors. For example, Al-Bailawi, whose current commentary was very influential at that time. This information, 
made, for the, made the cash as the noon so valuable for Bar Barthélemy Derbelo and his Bibliothèque Orientale, published in 1697. On the other hand, almost no room has been left for the physical features and, interestingly enough, the introduction deals at length with science and not with writing as in the Fierist. This is a few cases where you have a mention of the physical appearance of a book. Our two authors' goal of a census of the literary production certainly contrasts with an approach dominated, at least theoretically, by the issue of an oral transmission of the text. Katib Chelebi's introduction may seem closer to the concerns of Muslim traditional scholarship about the genealogy of knowledge and its legitimacy. But in the end, the Kashf as Zunun is a book conceived for readers. On the other hand, both authors show only a limited interest for the materiality. This is certainly not the result of a lack of terminology as demonstrated by the Kariwan inventory of 1294 or other sources dealing with the materials or the scripts, I think, for example, to the literature about calligraphy. But, as I said earlier, Kitab refers inevitably to a writing and focuses the attention on a text, a view apparently still shared by Western catalogers of Arabic manuscripts today. Thank you. speaker today is Anthony Grafton, the Henry Putnam University Professor of History at Princeton University. As many of you will know, Professor Grafton is a leading specialist of the history of early modern Europe with a particular emphasis on classical scholarship, intellectual history, and book history from the Renaissance to the 18th century. I just learned that he's currently engaged in an exciting collaborative project uh, working with grad students at Princeton to reconstruct the Winthrop Library, uh, which brings, him, uh, brings his research stateside. Um, his recent publications include The Culture of the Correction in Renaissance Europe from 2011, a groundbreaking study of editing practices of professional correctors employed in printing workshops, Worlds Made by Words, Scholarship and Community in the Modern West from 2011, and with Daniel Rosenberg, Cartographies of Time, a History of the Timeline. As a small sample of publication suggests, Professor Grafton's scholarship comfortably traverses both the textual and the visual and, of course, the material. His work has been widely recognized within and well beyond academic circles. He's been the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Balzan Prize for History of Humanities, and the Mellon Foundation's Distinguished Achievement Award, among many others. The title of the paper that Professor Grafton will be presenting today is Dure Mabalonica, The Graphic Origins of Paleography. Please join me in welcoming Professor Grafton. Well, 
heartfelt thanks to Yael and to Vera, whom I wish could be here, for inviting me, and to all the Adana and Claire, the other organizers of this extraordinary conference. It's a great honor to be here, and I'm most grateful for it. My apologies also for changing not only my title but my talk. Um, I fell down a rabbit hole on the way to biobibliography. Uh, and. Uh, let me urge the wonderfully large number of young people here, when you fall down a rabbit hole, go with it. It's always the best thing you can be doing. On September 16, 1685, Jean Mabillon went to the Vatican Library, passing, as you still do, the statue of Hippolytus on the way. He, he went to examine a manuscript, in fact, to hold the first paleography seminar ever held, and perhaps still the best. He had company. Emanuel Schalstrata, the librarian of the Vatican, and the painter Giovanni Pietro Bellori. And he, they examined a wonderful manuscript, the Vatican Virgil, written and illustrated in Rome in the first decades of the fifth century, a manuscript both of script and of illumination. As Schelstrata explained in his notes, the three men attended to every detail. They started with format and the general appearance of the script. It's a quarto, square in shape, written in capital letters, with no word divisions except at points of punctuation. They decomposed words into letters and letters into pen strokes. The letter A is written without a crossbar. The letter P is not completely closed. The letter U is always round. The letter I has a very short upper line. Now, in the end, as Ingo Herklotz has shown, the manuscript's gorgeous miniatures of pagan gods and rituals misled them into dating it too early, uh, before Constantine's adoption of Christianity as the religion of the empire. But the nature, I would say the texture of the examination to which they subjected the manuscript is telling nonetheless. For decades, humanists had been meeting in libraries to talk about manuscripts and to examine them, to date them and assess them. In 1491, for example, Angelo Poliziano met a young man called Pietro Bembo and examined Bembo's manuscript of Terence, also written around 400. Uh, from Poliziano's notes, we can see that he compared its script to that of the Florentine manuscript of the Digest of the Roman Law, perhaps the most famous manuscript in Europe, as well to, as to another manuscript of Virgil. But Mabillon and his friends, I think it's clear, worked in a different way, even than Poliziano. They examined the material, the shape, the illustrations of their manuscript, as well as its script. And more important, instead of simply comparing the script and classifying it, they examined it in depth. You could say they anatomized it, taking the letters down to the strokes that made them. Mabillon was the soul of modesty. It seems only appropriate that the first school he attended was the Collège des Bons Enfants in France. But when it came to radical philology, he happily played the role of Robespierre. In 1681, he published De Re Diplomatica, the book that transformed the study of both documents and manuscripts. An engraved frontispiece used the traditional visual language of mythology to highlight the importance and novelty of the book. By laying out rules for dating and authenticating written texts, the book served two ancient divinities at once, Justice, the goddess of the courts, and Cleo, the muse of history. As a writer, however, Mabillon adopted a more up-to-date idiom, that of the novelty-loving 17th century. I am setting about a new branch of the antiquary's art, he proclaimed, which deals with the methods, formulas, and authority of old documents. 
Now, the bold tone of this declaration is not hard to account for. Mabillon's book responded to an equally bold provocation, and it was a Benedictine answering a Jesuit. In 1675, Daniel von Papebroek, Jesuit and member of the bibliographical task force, the Bollandists, the hagiographical task force known as the Bollandists, added what he called an antiquarian preface to the second April volume of their great compendium of saints' lives, the Acta Sanctorum. He argued that most of the early charters of the Merovingian kings, the documents that recorded their grants of land and privileges to the Benedictines, were fakes. In the De Re Diplomatica, Mabillon set out to prove that the Benedictines' privileges rested on genuine titles. He assembled virtually everything known in his time about the history of both charters and other kinds of documents and books. He described papyrus and vellum, pens and ink, scriptoria and libraries, and above all, he used engraving, the central and powerful illustrative technology of the time, to present his evidence to the reader. Vivid facsimiles made it possible to inspect, albeit virtually, the documents that the Jesuit scholars had impugned, and many others that gave them a new context. Mabillon, in fact, reproduced specimens of every kind of Latin writing, literary as well as documentary. He reconstructed families of scripts, and he analyzed every individual script, showing, as you can see best at the bottom here, letter by letter how to write them or how to transcribe them into a modern, in modern Roman characters. These reconstructed alphabets are a primary uh, feature of Mabillon's work, in the words of Alfred Hyatt, they provided a visual history of documentary form. So when Mabillon, a few years later, examined the Vatican Virgil pen stroke by pen stroke, he was being his own best reader. Uh, what writer could ask for more? Now, Mabillon made plenty of mistakes, and sometimes the Jesuits were right when he was wrong. In fact, most of the documents in question were not originals. They were mostly genuine documents, but they were later copies than Mabillon himself realized, produced as the scriptoria renewed documents that were becoming old. His history of scripts was oversimplified, as Chipona Maffei showed in the 18th century. Still, his lucid arguments and his massed, weighty, vivid sources overwhelmed all counter-arguments. Even Popabook admitted as much. In a letter which is perhaps the high point in history of academic graciousness, he wrote, I like nothing in my own little essay, Eight Leaves Long, on this subject, except that it provided the occasion for your outstanding and truly perfect work. <laughs> what models did Mabillon follow? Humanists, philologists, had been studying manuscripts for some time, and as early as the 15th century, they were classifying Latin scripts using terms which are actually quite precise, like Lombardic. In or before 1492, Annius of Viterbo, the greatest forger of the Renaissance, discovered, that is to say created, marble labs with inscriptions. One of them, circular in form, and I'm sorry about the, the bad picture, I took it a long, long time ago uh, and haven't been able to get back to Viterbo. One of them, circular in form, recorded a degree of Desiderius, king of the Lombards, from the late 8th century, and it was cut, as Annius himself pointed out, in ancient and decayed Lombard letters. In this case, as so often, a little knowledge proved dangerous. Annius knew that Lombardic script had flourished in early medieval Italy, but he didn't know that it had been used exclusively for manuscripts, not for epigraphy. Fortunately, his contemporaries knew no more. Even Angelo Poliziano accepted this inscription as genuine. 
Over time, skills sharpened. The 16th century Roman scholar Gabriella Faerno notoriously could judge the age of manuscripts from their script as stable boys inferred the ages of horses from their teeth. Some humanists took a serious interest in the material and visual details of manuscripts. The Tübingen Greek scholar Martin Crusius, for example, collected letters from contemporary Greeks. He noted the shapes and qualities of the paper they used, uh, he reproduced their seals, and he even reproduced and deciphered their monocondylic signatures, those magnificent series of curlicues made without ever lifting the pen from the page. Other ca others cast their net over a wider range of F scripts more or less abstracted from the material uh, vehicles that carried them. Juan Bautista Cardona, Bishop of Tortosa, urged a, a colleague, the renowned philologist Antonio Agustin, Bishop of Tarragona, to undertake a comprehensive paleographical project in the new library of the Escorial, where Latin and Greek manuscripts were arriving by the dozen. Cardona suggested that his friend could create a group, a book, in which these letters are set out by distinct periods and which assigns each period its letters. Once comparison is made easier in this way, it will be easy to work out the age of each manuscript in the library with more certainty. Cardona thought this might take a month. <laughs> now, humanists like Crusius and Cardona for all their energy and learning, worked locally, rather as biobibliographers normally did, compiling information from the manuscripts in their environment, in their own collections, and in nearby libraries. Mabillon revolutionized his field in the first place by working on a pan-European scale as he collected information and collected specimens. He and friends asked scholars across Europe to provide precise copies of early manuscripts in their custody. In July 1679, one of his close allies, Emery Bigot, appealed to Antonio Maiebecchi in Florence. By your love of letters, I beg you to have the first two lines of the Medici and he had copied for me. To that end, I'm sending a piece of transparent paper to put on top of the writing. Librarians, please don't listen. After the paper is put on top of the writing, you have to sketch it as it is in the manuscript with pen and ink. I think it's a lovely device. You will take care to stretch the paper that you put on top of the writing so that when the paper expands, the writing does not become larger with it and so fails to portray the writing of the manuscript. Scale mattered, but so did precision, the tongue between the teeth care with which each maker of a facsimile was put to work. Early modern philologists rarely used their eyes to good effect. Even when they dug an early site, as Simon Ditchfield has shown, text came before trowel. Uh, humanists descended into the catacombs in Rome, looked at their walls, and saw scenes of martyrs being burned, though there are, in fact, no frescoes of martyrs in the Roman catacombs. Mabillon, by contrast, insisted that only rigorous practice and direct experience, viewing dozens of documents, could equip a scholar to pr practice his new art, could equip him to focus his senses. All you need in this matter is eyes, but I want expert eyes, not the sort of eyes, evidently, that the humanists had turned on their books. How to develop them? Well, one answer comes to mind immediately. The natural philosophers of the 17th century paid close attention to minute beings, which their learned predecessors would have dismissed as insignificant. Mabillon and his associates, so it seems, did the same thing. They found meaningful patterns in the movements of a long-dead scribe's pen. 
Historians of silence no longer like to talk about the scientific revolution, but the way in which Mabin and his colleagues addressed their manuscripts has the look of a philological revolution. Mabin, however, did not appeal to the new philosophy as a model. Instead, he argued that a judge of manuscripts needed the discriminating visual skills possessed by master artisans. Genuine documents, he says, have a sort of stamp of truthfulness about them, which often ravishes the eyes of experts at first sight. In the same way, expert goldsmiths sometimes distinguish real gold from fake by touch alone. Painters distinguish genuine examples of panels from copies. Numismatists, finally, always distinguish genuine coins from spurious ones by their appearance alone. Here and elsewhere, Mabillon hinted that the source of his practices lay not in learned culture, but in the tacit knowledge associated with artisanal practice. And in his preface, even as he asserted the novelty of his art, Mabillon mentioned the artisans that he actually had in mind. The Italian writing master Giovanni Battista Palatino and the French writing master Pierre Amon, who had served as one of the secretaries of King Charles IX. These men were professional scribes of the sorts whose workloads and numbers and reputations exploded in the 16th century. The prophets of Wired magazine, as some of you will remember, told us that the computer would eliminate paperwork. Instead, as we all know, it generates more paper than ever before. Printing, of course, had the same effect on writing. Scribes were more necessary than ever. They, only they could provide documents that were clearly genuine, that is to say, not reproduced by printing. Only they could service the needs of governments and churches for legible paperwork. Printing made the careers of scribes. And the stars of this renewed profession at the start were the papal secretaries who developed the fashionable chancery hand, one of whom was that Pietro Bembo whom we met looking at an early manuscript of Terence a little while ago. Among, however, and Palatino did something more, or so Mabillon argued. He had the idea of publishing examples of all sorts of writing, including ancient examples which he had hunted up in the Royal Library in Fontainebleau and elsewhere. Mabillon's publisher, Louis Bien, provided him with Amon's notebook, which survives in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, and it's an amazing document. It includes the letters of recommendation which gained Amon entrance to particular libraries, early examples of a genre with which we're all familiar. But more important, the notebook contains a rich collection of script samples with Amon's comments. He copied, for example, a full page of Tyronean notes, the shorthand um, supposedly devised by Cicero's secretary from a codex in Saint-Germain-des-Prés and wrote above it, these Ciceronian notes are more than 1,200 years old by, by Pierre Amon, scribe to the king and secretary to his chamber. He worked with great visual acuity. The erudite humanist Isaac Kasobin, who was god of the Royal Library for 10 years, came across an extraordinary document, the so-called Urbino Tablet, a tablet with Roman agrarian law in it that was actually created under the Roman Republic. It was by far the oldest specimen of writing not on stone that any Renaissance humanist ever saw. And as you see, he noted seeing it in a margin of one of his books. He did not, however, make any effort to copy it or to study it. By contrast, Contrast, Amon not only copied the Urbino alphabet, but he broke the tablet, but broke it down into a particular alphabet, as he did with other scripts. Mabillon appropriated Amon's version of Tyronean script and other specimens as well, alphabet and all. One of them is a very old and striking manuscript 
the Carta Plenariae Securitatis, it's a Ravenna legal papyrus in late Roman cursive, not easy to read. In this case, too, Amon copied a passage and laid out the alphabet in which it was written. But when Mamillon reused this segment of Amon's material, he got a little more than he bargained for. Amon, as ingenious as he was curious, added a bottom line to his transcript, which designated the document as the will of Julius Caesar. And Mamillon, unfortunately, as he copied material from Amon, took that as genuine rather than the inspiration of the moment, put it in as the title of the document, and described it more than once as Caesar's will. Now, the plates were printed first, so by the time he came to print the text, he'd realized with horror the mistake he'd made, and he apologizes for it a number of times. Of course, the plates couldn't be reprinted. That would have been far too expensive. And I think he was too honest to do a, a running, running correction or a paste-on. I think he would have thought that was really not correct. Uh, he really was an extraordinary man. What matters more than the particular materials Mabillon took from Amon is the style of analysis that he took from the writing masters, for they were the ones who taught him how to, how to analyze and represent scripts. The art of the scribe was richly and deeply embodied, and their textbooks tried to show how to make their tacit knowledge explicit. Illustrations showed how to hold and how not to hold a pen. Mastering an alphabet meant learning how to form each letter. Writing masters accordingly broke scripts down into alphabets, alphabets into letters, letters into pen strokes. Ludovico Vincentino degli Abigi, a scribe in the papal chancery, published the first manual of chancery cursive in 1522. He shows his readers how to form all the letters that use the same flat and bold stroke, making the top slightly thicker than the stem, which is easily done if the first stroke is reversed and then turned on itself. Here you see similar work by Taliente, one of his rivals. Palatino and Amon both laid out multiple script samples, treated exactly as Mabillon would treat his. Above or below, each of them appears an analytical alphabet designed for those who hope to master the script. Mabillon emphasized that the writing masters showed only examples of recent scripts, but this is the sort of exaggeration to which innovators are prone then as now. In fact, Palatino included examples of, for example, Lombardic script in his manual, and the one on your left is, a, is actually a genuine piece of Lombardic script, though the, right, the one on the right is not. The writing masters, in other words, as Stanley Morris and Nicholas Barker and others have shown, cultivated a historical as well as a practical interest in writing. And the idealized alphabet was not the only tool that Mabillon took from them. Erasmus, as we know from his dialogue on pronunciation, was a master of writing techniques. And in, in that book, he actually describes the use of tracing as a technique for teaching writing. So here, too, what Mabillon applied to scholarship was a technique from the scribe's workshop. Now, the De Re Diplomatica does, in a way, represent some of the preeminent works of natural philosophy in early modern Europe. Think only of Leonhard Fuchs's Botany or Andreas Vesalius's Anatomy. In each case, artisanal, schools, artisanal skills transformed the practice of learned men, as Fuchs acknowledged by celebrating the artists who had made the, the woodcuts for his own book. Vesalius, who worked intimately and intensively with artists, also celebrated his own mastery of the basically artisanal skills of the surgeon. 
nearer to Mabillon's own time, Robert Hooke famously trained his microscope on human hairs, worm-eaten books, and the eyes of the eyes of the fly, showing that every dust mote was a new world inhabited by amazing creatures. By Mabillon's time, you could say, a kind of hybrid creature had arrived in, in the form of Hooke and others, people who were both technicians and theoreticians at once. And to some extent, I think Mabillon does, rep rep does resemble them. Few early modern natural philosophers emulated Fuchs and named their helpers. Technicians, as Stephen Chapin has taught us, usually remained anonymous unless an alembic exploded or some other problem had to be explained. So, as Anne Blair has shown, did the amanuenses on whose work Erasmus and other prolific authors depended. Mamion was less generous than Fuchs, but more forthcoming than other learned men when he named at least a couple of the artisans of writing from whom he had learned a new way to look at, analyze, and reproduce scripts. And in one crucial passage, I would argue, he actually suggests the extent of his debt, but in a language we've forgotten to understand. Mabillon claimed that he was setting about a new branch of the antiquary's art. Now, historians, including me in earlier times, have assumed that he was referring to the art of the antiquarians, students of material remains who copied inscriptions and examined sculptures. But another meaning of antiquarius, in fact, the primary meaning in ancient Latin, is scribe. And a number of the most proficient antiquarians of the Renaissance, such as Felice Feliciano, combined their activities examining inscriptions with activities of professional scribes. This is his famous manuscript of uh, capitals in the Vatican Library based on his study of inscriptions. So I think that one of the things this story tells us is that antiquarianism was not only about reconstructing the past, it was also about aesthetically transforming the present by bringing scripts back to life. What Mabillon created, as he knew better than anyone, but we have forgotten, was a new, richly historicized form of the ancient graphic art of the scribe. Critical paleography began not in humanistic philosophy, not in natural philo in philology, not in natural philosophy, but in creative calligraphy. Thank you. Now I have a few minutes to perform the unenviable feat of responding to our two distinguished uh, plenary speakers. Since professors Grafton and Doroche have given us monumental views of the book in Europe and Islamic lands, I wanted to offer a few tiny peaks across these two vast regions to see European books from the other side. Vera Keller, were she able to be here, would have provided a counter perspective. Suffice to say, texts and images from Byzantium and the Latin West circulated widely and in great numbers across the Islamic world from the 7th century onward. This can be explained on one hand by the self-proclaimed status of Islam as an inheritor to rather than a departure from the Judeo-Christian traditions. But commerce, diplomacy, and conflict also spurred the flow of gifts uh, goods and booty across the lands where Islam was dominant. Granada, Alexandria, Baghdad, Tabriz, Samarkand, and Agra served as global entrepot for the exchange of books and related materials, among other objects. 
Perhaps because they could be more easily assimilated than text, Western images found particularly positive, if highly selective, reception at various royal courts across the Islamic world. The Abbasid translation movement is most often associated with the adaptation of classical texts from Greek into Arabic, but it also produced visual artistic transmutations. One of these was the author portrait, a paratextual feature of some late antique, Coptic, and Middle Byzantine manuscripts that 13th century artists incorporated into the frontispieces of Arabic books. As this example from an Arabic copy of Dioscurides de Materia Medica, as you see on the right, shows, the transfer process was not one of slavish imitation, but rather modification. Here, Dioscurides and the student with whom he is shown conferring over a mandrake wear turbans and inscribed armbands, known as tiraz, the standard garb of Muslim elites at this time. And of course, you show, I, I have the comparison of uh, the, famous, the very famous Vienna Codex of the De Materia Medica, which shows exactly, precisely the same scene. The artist's adaptation of the classical portrait could be understood as an attempt to transfer physiognomical, that is, biographical information about the author to this new bibliographical context. But this process also entailed the Islamicization of Dioscurides, an operation that may have been intended to suggest the seamless transmission of knowledge from the classical past to the Islamic present. The period of the Pax Mongolica established further networks of trade and diplomacy across Eurasia, including between Greater Iran and Europe. To complete the Jamia Tavarikh, the Compendium of Chronicles, a world history that culminated in the rule of the Mongols, Rashid Adin, a Jewish convert to Islam who served as vizier at the Ilkhanid court at Tabriz from 1298 to 1316, consulted numerous texts including people and European royal chronicles. Um, Franks employed at the Mongol court in Tabriz likely served as translators of these texts. That Rashid Adin's illustrators also consulted Christian illustrated manuscripts is suggested by the occurrence of paintings like this one you see, um, which appears in an Arabic copy of the Jamia Tavarikh from around 1315. The image could be easily mistaken for a scene of Jesus's birth, but it in fact depicts the birth of Muhammad, Islam's final prophet. Communities of Christian Nestorians, Armenians, and Jacobians flourished around the region of Tabriz, but our illustrated manuscript source more likely migrated to the Ilkhanid realms uh, with Franciscan uh, or Dominican missionaries who traveled there in the mid 13th century with the aim of converting the Mongols to Catholicism. Indeed, the Ilkhanids did flirt with Christianity. One even married uh, the daughter of a Byz uh, the illegitimate daughter of a Byzantine emperor um, before they, in the end, converted to Islam uh, towards the end of the 13th century. The circulation of European manuscripts and other objects in the Islamic realms continued during the centuries that followed, a fact that is attested by drawings like this one, which Guru Najipulu has recently attributed to the early 15th century Timurid courts of Samarkand or Herat. She suggests that European manuscript illustrations of chivalric hunting scenes, as we see at top, um, 
which are similar to this badapage from the early 14th century St. Mary's Psalter, might have served as source materials. Scenes like this one likely appealed to Timurid patrons and artists because they resonated with Persian poetic romances, which, like their Petrarchan corollaries, carried mystical subtexts. The English composition's mostly monochromatic palette was also easily assimilable into the Persianate artistic canon, which held black pen or siyah kalam compositions in high estimation. But the European, or in Persian, Ferengi, or Frankish mode, was here, as elsewhere, often apprised in comparison with the Chinese, or Chini, mode of figuration, as signaled by the inclusion of a distinctively Chini-style tree in the upper, upper left of the composition that you see at top. The Ferengi and the Chini artistic idioms were often juxtaposed in this manner, and if the greater occurrence of Chinese-style compositions is any indication, the latter seems to have won out. Versions of a 12th century saying, positing that the Chinese had two eyes, the Franks one, and the Muslims none, circulated across the Persianate realms, thus pointing to a clear hierarchy in which the perceived naturalism of the Chini representational mode outranked that of the Ferengi. The 16th century marked a distinct shift in this paradigm, however. The arrival of a Jesuit mission at the northern Indian court of the Mughals in 1580 opened new channels for the transfer of European books and images, including seven of the eight volumes of, Plan of the Plantain Royal Polyglot Bible and copies of Abraham Ortelius's Theatris Orbis Terrarum and Jerome Nadal's Illustrated Gospels of 1595, among many other printed books. Here, as we saw with the prior examples, the Mughal artist fully transformed his source material, uh, excising the annotations that appear in the lower register of the printed page and cropping the composition to focus attention on the nativity scene. Note we've actually lost the city scene that's in the original engraving. The Mughal composition has also reversed the original, most likely the result of the transfer process the artist made little attempt to correct any resulting errors, even leaving the Latin inscription on the cherub's banderole in reverse. <laughs> Rather, the mobile artist seems to have been most taken with the European print's use of novel tonal and modeling effects, which, as one contemporaneous mobile idologue suggested, could cause a picture to be mistaken for reality. According to the same mobile author, it was the Frankish and not the Chinese uh, artists who were the magic workers. The old hierarchy had shifted. Ferengi art was now again ascendant. These few, cases, uh, few case studies evince a profound awareness of European, not to mention Chinese, aesthetic traditions. They also register the degree to which manuscript specialists in the Islamic world deemed alien forms, styles, and media commensurate with their own. Perhaps these instances offer us a model of practice as we embark on comparative bibliographical projects uh, of our own in the future. Thank you. And with that, we have at least 20 minutes or so
for Q&A for um, our plenary, plenary speaker. So um, I'm happy to call on um, those in the audience who have questions. We have some rotating microphones. And actually, maybe it's easiest if we invite Professors Grafton and Dorish to the stage. Uh, in, 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 in,
and I discovered that there are prices which are actual prices because we, we have prices, uh, for example, in the Bibliothèque Nationale, uh, most of the uh, manuscripts are the manuscript bought in the 17th uh, century by advanced lab and uh, travelers to the East. They do have uh, prices because, of course, they wanted to be uh, reimbursed for the expenses by the king of Colbert. But uh, in that case, you always suspect that there is uh, a bias because, of course, uh, for Christians, buying uh, Muslim books was not uh, that easy and they probably went through intermediaries, which means that the price is uh, certainly not the market price, but uh, well, uh, well, as it will happen later. So we, uh, the, 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 of course, there was a market, but we don't know what were the rules and what were the, the criteria. I do hope to be able to answer your question in, well, maybe two years and maybe I'm <laughs> So thank you, and that, that question needs a little unpacking. So obviously, um, being a good scribe is a marketable skill, and that, and that is something that like, you yeah, only can get a good job in the French administration as a professional and get privileges of admission to libraries that would normally be closed to lay people. Um, I think that the chief thing driving interest in script in the period I study is ideology rather than money. Um, what matters is showing that uh, your version of the church is the one that has the strongest historical foundation. So the Parker Library, um, it, part of which, though by no means all, um, is now in, Christ, in, in Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, was built as a tool to reconstruct the pure Anglo-Saxon church and follow its degeneration under the Normans. Uh, and a, a wonderful student of mine has, has been working on the Parkerians' ideas about script and its history, which were um, much less sophisticated than Mavion's, but which clearly developed from the fact that they had multiple manuscripts, insular manuscripts, uh, Anglo-Saxon manuscripts, and, uh, and uh, later Carolingian manuscripts, and later ones that they had a huge basis for comparison. The most detailed material analysis of a manuscript I know for the late 17th century is actually in the Polyglot Bible. And it's an analysis of a Latin Hebrew manuscript from Christ Church, Canterbury. Um, Theo Dunkelgrim has worked on this, and it's fantastically precise, but it's called forth because Ariat Montano, the editor, wanted to prove that this was a reliable manuscript against critics who uh, doubted the whole utility of applying philology to the text of the Bible. So I think it's really ideology that pushes this study in, in the 16th and 17th century. about some of these uh, networks of exchange. I'm wondering that in addition to studying tracing paper, was uh, anything else technology-wise or object-wise, um, text-wise, that sort of the quid pro quo in um, asking for these samples? Uh, what are the sweet materials? Um, in fact, the quid pro quo was your mention in the text. So Mavion always thanks the person who sends the specimen, you know, and they're, they're very vividly in the plates, which was the part of the book that everyone read. Uh, you know, so, you know, so this was just as Anne Blair has shown for Conrad Gessner, that the, the coin he has to repay people who help him in his bibliographical work is mentioned. And so here, too, um, you could repay with fame. I have a question more generally about uh, the Islamic relationship between calligraphy and antiquarian 
Freudianism starts much earlier because of the centrality of polygamy. So I was just hoping to address uh, how that perhaps missing aspect of bibliographic knowledge changed Islamic interactions with other schools. You mean uh, calligraphy was not was a different uh, part of the picture? Uh, essentially, the methods and practices that allowed, uh, say, someone working in the Ottoman court to assess and date earlier copies of texts based on calligraphic evidence and how this interacted with the overall conception of the authority of text. Well, uh, there is, of course, a, a problem that uh, we have a tradition where uh, categories apply to scripts and, of course, we have another bias, uh, which uh, the word uh, meaning calligraphy, hat uh, is also meaning writing. And so in, uh, there, there seems to be a confusion. Uh, uh, a, a script is a good script. Uh, you don't deal with uh, uh, ordinary scripts. So there, there might be there a problem, because then the categories used for calligraphy tend to be the same from 10th century to the 19th century. But of course, uh, history is uh, there. And if you look at uh, a specimen, which is called, let's say, Mohakak uh, in the 15th century, and look at the Ottoman equivalent, you see that there are some differences. Uh, so and uh, when then you take things from uh, another point of view, which is more or less the fakes, uh, they are actually more interesting in that uh, regard because they show what people actually didn't know about the scripts. They knew very little. Actually, we have a lot of uh, spurious, uh, well, this is religious, the Quran of Osman, that is to say the earliest copy of the, the Quran. Uh, all the material is from the 9th century, not from the 7th. There are two exceptions from the 8th century, but no no one of these manuscripts is could be uh, a manuscript of the early period. So there was uh, misinformation, I suppose, because the earliest copies just were not nice enough to be uh, seen as copies of Osman. Osman, of course, <coughs> should be a calligrapher. Wouldn't try. Uh, I don't know if you remember my picture of the the chronic manuscript, the, one of the earliest. It's not impressive at all. It's not nice. It's uh, actually it's very crude. Uh, so uh, it was discarded, and instead you have this phase. And then if you take calligraphy, you have a lot of uh, of fakes in um, uh, in Istanbul uh, with uh, the work with uh, there are works of uh, famous uh, Ilhani, the uh, uh, calligrapher from Ilhani time, Yakut Anustasi, who is well the the best. Uh, and uh, obviously, nobody had uh, an idea of what was the genuine script of uh, Yakut. Uh, but uh, as long as it was uh, signed with his name, it was uh, good enough. And uh, I, uh, I've read uh, papers by uh, colleagues who uh, found this kind of material with Ottoman uh, illumination. And making an effort to explain that these were copies without illumination at the start made by Yakut and illuminated uh, four or five centuries later by uh, Ottoman artists in order to make uh, things to coincide. So uh, calligraphy is 
uh, perhaps a, a very uh, a tricky uh, field of, uh, of research because uh, it's uh, completely polluted by this kind of, uh, of material. Uh, pollution is a wonderful word for it. You're absolutely right. So in Matthew Parker's collection, um, the manuscript he thought he had, which was the grandest, was a paper copy of Homer's Iliad, which he thought had been brought to England by Theodore of Tarsus because it was signed Theodore. It was actually a, a manuscript of Theodore Gaza, 15th century manuscript. On the other hand, the most magnificent manuscript in corpus to this is, of course, the, the Augustine Gospel. There was incredible illuminated manuscript that uh, is associated with Augustine, the apostle to the English, but because he was the evidence of Roman corruption in the English church, Parker never mentions this manuscript, even though it's by far the grandest thing in his collection. So pollution began to the theology. Uh, and, and there's a sense of identity. On the other hand, Camillo Bobbi, who wrote the first treatise on graphology, which was 
printed in 1620, says uh, anyone who can write well is a dummy. I mean, you know, it's a sign of intelligence that you write an illegible script. <laughs> so, so you clearly can't generalize it in, in, in a powerful way. Um, I do think, though, that um, the, it's easy to undervalue the aesthetic part of antiquarianism. Uh, and again, that's probably a lesson we can learn from studies of the Chinese scholarship that it's deeply engaged in the aesthetic value of the objects and scripts and uh, uh, rituals that it's bringing back to life. And it's very easy for us to identify these people as sort of proto-historians, but that's not, in fact, what they are. I want to introduct quickly because I think I as moderator. Um, I have a question, um, which I think actually follows nicely the, the previous ones. Um, uh, Professor Dorosh, in your talk, you emphasize or underscore the, uh, the sort of value of writing and the content of writing over the material. Um, and leading from this issue of calligraphy, and in particular, of course, in the Islamic world, the, the notion that the hand of the calligrapher contains is essentially a kind of trace of um, moral a kind of moral profile right as an kind of index of um, the, the calligraphy of the scribe I was wondering if there are instances you've come across where the sort of original the author's um, manuscript is critiqued right because here you have sort of the original writing content but then the hand is sloppy right um, and is there a kind of conflict there? Yes, I think uh, the best example is uh, Gadi Chedi. Yeah. Uh, his own uh, copy of the card is really, uh, well, it's a scholar's, uh, in the best sense of the word, uh, work. Well, think what it mean, meant to, to handle 15,000 titles in the time where, uh, of course, you uh, had to handle twice, uh, you built yourself, and then, so it put a lot of, uh, of extra paper, reviewed, uh, so in, in the end, you had to pay someone to make a nice copy, because, of course, uh, uh, he couldn't do that, it was a, it's a huge work to, to transcribe this, and uh, so we, we, we do have uh, this, but, uh, once again, and we turn to this idea of the moral value of the, the street. Uh, it's there, as I said, uh, and words are very important in this uh, hot uh, script. It's nice, it cannot be a bad script. So you eliminate automatically from, from the field of the script uh, every non-descript uh, thing, every ugly uh, script, because you only can speak of nice looking strips and it's uh, just as simple as uh, that. Pseudo-Arabic and Pseudo-Hebraic scripts in um, 
early printing Latin books and manuscripts. And so I'm wondering if, it, if, that, if you see the opposite or related phenomenon in other languages uh, in the work that you guys uh, have done. So I can speak to the later material specifically at the mobile report. Um, and fascinatingly enough, the reverse text on the back wall is roughly approximates um, you know, the, the, uh, the inscription. Um, but more often than not, I see gibberish, um, Latin and Greek, sort of what you would call pseudo-Latin, pseudo-Greek, which always kind of stymies me because um, not only the presence of the Jesuits at the court, but other Europeans there were um, numerous collaborations among mobile scholars with Jesuits. They, um, that is to say, they certainly have the opportunity to get it right, and it was not a particular interest to them. Um, and it's more about sort of the appearance of throngy uh, writing. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, uh, there is uh, a wonderful example uh, in the Pyrrhis. The first chapter on scripts included in the original. Uh, Copy and a few copies which are rather close to the original include uh, foreign uh, scripts. And uh, this is also uh, fascinating because they uh, have collected information about uh, scripts in use uh, in, uh, well, in uh, this world, I mean the Middle East, and even including uh, uh, pre Islamic uh, inscriptions. So it, it's one of the, the best examples I would uh, use here. Mm -hmm. So just thinking a little bit further about the um, questions of um, the hierarchy and also the moral character of certain forms of intellectual labor, we've been talking about, for instance, the position of the scribe as well as the scholar who writes. Um, and I guess I have, uh, my question is triggered by your comment about Navion's um, a modest man he got to a huge angle with the Bello Benedictine about the proper place of monastic studies, you know, as a member of the religious order. And I wonder how you think Mavion reconciled, or did he need to reconcile <coughs> his particular form of intellectual labor with what a modest monk was supposed to do in office? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. He writes this amazing treatise on monastic studies, which is very influential in the 18th century Catholic revival in Austria and elsewhere. Um, I, I think Mavion himself um, thought he knew what he was doing, that it was within the Benedictine tradition of connecting classical culture, um, the history and traditions of the order, and that he thought the opposition really came from innovation. So in that sense, I, I think he thought that Benedictines were being told to act in a way that they hadn't in fact acted in the past. And, and I think he would probably, if he pushed him, have said, this, like Jansenism, is evidence of us responding to Protestants and to some extent forming formations that have certain resemblances to Protestantism, whereas he would have represented a, a deeper Benedictine tradition. As far as work goes, of course, we still say a Benedictine labor. Um, and you know, one of the things that is just astonishing is the way that work is organized in the congregation that he belonged to. There were several hundred full members, and all of them worked on their editorial and paleographical projects. Uh, long before anyone is doing big science, the Benedictines are doing big scholarship. Uh, but they are doing it as, you know, as their labor within the context of the order. Uh, just as correctors in the early days of printing were often mendicants, um, because you couldn't pay a mendicant. 
uh, a copy of uh, Yakut's uh, Quran for his library, knowing that it's, it's a facsimile, but his son will inherit uh, a manuscript with the signature of Yakut, so it's Yakut's work, and that's all. So it's a matter of time. Yes, you see. So the Benedictines similarly place a great store in, in their <coughs> documentary work in producing a document that looked like the document it was replacing, and there too, the line between facsimile and what might later be called forgery is a, is a very narrow one. But I think your question is, is really good. In the early days of paleography, they're more interested in writing histories of script families and giving them names. Uh, than in dating manuscripts than they are in the information of colophons, which are often actually somewhat overlooked. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time.